Good morning, and welcome to Who's in the Kitchen. You're listening to WDRT 91.9 FM Community Radio, radio from the ground up. And we're coming from the Driftless area of southwestern Wisconsin. This is a food show, and today we're going to be talking about a different approach to food and farming. We've had some conversations about some of the dire situations of the of our food situation. And when I was talking with uh, my guest, he said, I've, I've got a whole different way of talking about this issue. And he recognizes the challenges that we have on our planet now. So my guest is Lars Bergen. Welcome, Lars. Hi, Philothea. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, Lars is, um, he's, well, he was... He's grown up here, or he's he's put his roots down here now. Did you were you born here? Or were you born in Madison? Or I was born in Chicago. I lived for a little while up in Middle Ridge when we were moving to Madison, and then I spent my childhood in Madison. But I was up in the Middle Ridge area in Coon Valley because I had family farms to visit, and that's where we came. Right. So you got a lot of loyalty to this area and a lot of history. Right. And now you're a farmer with land, and and uh, you can tell us what you raise, and you live outside of Bloomingdale, and you're really involved in a lot of things, uh, Youth Initiative High School, for one thing, and uh, probably Pleasant Ridge. And you've got children, and you've got got a lot of connections with the with this area. And a lot of insight. And Lars just loves to cook. I mean, I, he's been on my show, and we've just, just talked about recipes and meat and things like that. Anyway, today is going to be, you're going to hear some ideas, I think, that are going to be interesting, challenging, help make us think. So thanks for being on the show, Lars. Um, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and what, I, what I'm thinking about today is I've spent a lot of time in my life talking to people about food when we started the cafe while ago and cooking food for a lot of people and selling meat off our farm to people and just and seeing that how everyone's unsettled right now by the environmental situation in our country. Everybody, whether or not they, they whatever political party they may come from or wherever they live, they're a little concerned about global warming. They read these reports about forty percent of the birds disappearing in the last forty years, which is true. For my for my work I'm a salesman, so I drive all around the upper Midwest and you just see a real diminution of life in the country, like literal, actual, biological life. Really? Yeah. Really? I mean, what you, do you, you notice? Like if you were to drive from here to Indianapolis, Indiana, once you got past Madison, you'd be kind of in flat, quote-unquote, good farm ground for, from there all the way through Bloomington, Illinois, through Champaign, Indianapolis, and you would see... I've done it. I've made that drive many times. You see maybe a half dozen animals, fewer people, very few birds. What you see is nothing but a brown landscape. It's like a desert. And the desert is corn and soybeans. And this time of year, from now until late May, there will be not a green sprout in those fields if the farmer can avoid it. I know. There's no weeds. <laughs> right. There's, there's no like, weeds. There are oh. no birds, there are no insects. And so you see the the result of a type of farming that is focused on killing all but one species on the farm. Whatever the species the farmer is choosing to to live mm-hmm. to, to grow, corn, soybeans, corn and soybeans, pretty much. And um or a particular species of animal. And then those places where they're growing a particular species of animal, it's often many thousands of them. And it's a biosecure situation because if, if they get any sort of pathogen on that farm, the species is so fragile to disease that they can have a total disease outbreak. So point being that I think if you go all the way back to the spiritual heritage that we all were born into, whether or not we're churchgoers or not, we all kind of know the Garden of Eden story, right? People were born into this garden where everything was harmonious and worked together, and they were told by God that they were kind of in charge of looking after this area, this place, this world, this garden. And then through circumstances that still are up debated in a lot of Christian circles, they were thrown out of the garden. And the way most Christian churches have interpreted this is that, oh, this is about their disobedience of God, 
this is what caused all their subsequent problems that they had to, you know, then Adam was condemned to work the soil and he could only live by the sweat of his brow and no longer would the earth just give to people, but rather they had to like take from it. They had to take from it to work for their life. And I think that, and then, but the sin itself was the disobedience to God rather than if you look back and you look at the same story and the same events, you could you could argue that the sin itself may have been the the, the feeling and the idea that they had to take from the earth, that the earth wasn't, that creation wouldn't freely give to them of what they needed, but rather mm-hmm. they had to take from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And then if you go to the mm-hmm. next story we all know in Genesis, Cain and Abel, Cain is the farmer, Abel is the herdsman. And if you look at those two kinds of ways of interacting with nature, a herdsman has to go from place to place, observe nature, keep his animals from getting eaten by the wolves, but really work in tune with nature, you know, be in it and among it. And um, whereas a farmer, he has to kill the weeds. He has to till the soil. He has to break the soil. He has to haul water. And of these two people, God found favor in the herdsman. And if you think of time, the, the story of Christmas story of Jesus, where when Jesus was born, this message was announced to people who were out at night, shepherds. And so, and you even think to, to continue the kind of like the religious tradition that I'm talking about, um, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, he was tempted with the, if, if you follow me, if you join my, my team, I will give you the power to turn stones into bread. And Jesus obviously rejected that because he's Jesus and went on to different um, ways of accomplishing things. But the point being is that we modern people have come to believe that we don't owe anything to the earth and that food can just be manufactured. It can just be made in a factory and wrapped in plastic and it will feed us. But if you think that part of our spiritual mission as a species and as individuals is to be healthy and look after the health of the world, it's simply not possible to make bread out of stones. Well, I think, too, of the tree of knowledge, and I think, you know, it was partly the pride of Adam and Eve. I mean, that's that's a temptation. We can we can think our things way our way out of this. We can figure it out, and we don't we don't need God. We could be gods, right? And that's kind of where we are now. We're just gonna we're gonna think our way out of the next problem that we've created. And sometimes some of these solutions are getting pretty pretty far out there, <laughs> right? And and the idea that it's become common practice and totally normal that you spray poison on crops that you're gonna eat. And that you spray poison indiscriminately. You know, the word that's used is like chemicals. But there's a particular kind of chemical that kills things, and that's called a poison. And so if you see a field, which is most of our fields, even here in Vernon County, the most organic farming county in the United States, most of the fields you see around us are sprayed with at least glyphosate and often glyphosate plus dicamba to kill the weeds. And it kills all the weeds. And if you do observe in you know, early June when they're spraying, it kills the weeds in like six hours. Like that is so fast. And the idea that that's only affecting those weeds and it's not affecting the food or the soil is absurd. And so this topic is starting to really get a lot of traction among a certain kind of farmer too, that like that a lot of the farmers that are buying and spraying these poisons are starting to wonder about why they're doing it and observe the effects of the parts of their farm where they're not spraying the poisons. Because the fact is, is whether you call that being God or the spirit or the earth, it was put here fitting together beautifully and working. And and humans still have the option of like entering into creation instead of trying to ruin it and damage it. And in so doing... They can produce food that will nourish their bodies and also do something physically that they will find delightful. And so I think that there's a lot of really public voices on the subject. The, the one that most people have heard of is Pope Francis um, of the Catholic Church, that pope. And um, his first thing that he chose to write about was um, when he became the pope was the care for our common home, which is obviously the earth. 
and where he really tries to get people to reflect on what we're, you know, what we're gaining and what we're losing by our modern way of living, you know, and what we're gaining is the ability to like, quote unquote, have whatever we want, whenever we want it and not have to like work for our, our food, you know, not have to do anything, not have to understand nature, not have to butcher a cow, not have to pull a weed in order to eat, but rather we just go to the store and there's food from somewhere. And it looks like food from before, but a lot of that food isn't what it claims to be. And they're, they now have, they're, they're developing um, mass spectrometer ways of measuring nutrition in food. And it appears that you can uh, take one carrot that's sort of conventionally raised out in California with chemicals and then one carrot that's raised in your backyard with good healthy soil and analyze the carrots. And it may be that the carrot that you raise in your backyard with love and care has five or six or ten times the nutrition of the carrot you buy in the store. They actually can to, measure that now? Oh, yeah. Um, and there, there's some company, it was in the Stockman Grass Farmer this month, that is designing somehow an app where you can take your phone and point it at a piece of produce and based on this database, of, they can analyze using infrared and stuff what is actually in that food. So there are tools that are becoming available for people who maybe don't have, they think, the time or energy to look after a piece of land, but still want to affect, you know, take in more spiritually nourishing food and also support people who are looking after the earth properly and um, knowing what is actually in your food, what nutritional power is there is, I think, a fairly good model or like example of what is in there spiritually as well. And I think that for us, for us people, we have to really consider that it might be our, at this point in history our spiritual duty to look after a piece of the earth, whether it's 40 acres if you live out in Vernon County or your backyard if you live in Madison or something or an animal or just some piece of creation that is not human and not a machine. And Pope Francis in his uh, on Our Care for Our Common Home makes the the obvious point that everything is connected. I was just going to say that. That's what we're moving toward. Everything is connected. And, and it, yeah, you made the point that at the beginning, everything was connected. And we've gotten sort of compartmentalized, haven't we? So we just want to attack one problem, not realizing how everything, you know, depends on our actions. Right. And if you look at the health of the soil, which is the ultimate producer of food and repository of carbon and holder of water, all those things that are so important to us as a people and as a species. Soil that's been repeatedly tilled and dosed with poison has very little biological life in it compared to soil that is not disturbed by plow and is not regularly poisoned with herbicides. So for people who haven't really thought about this, what kind of life is in the soil. I mean, I think a lot of people who don't grow things just think dirt is dirt. So well, what's what's in the soil that, that's so alive and that's being destroyed? Well, I think there's there is bacteria and fungi in a really broad sense are the are the the balance and there is a uh, there's a balance that's in healthy soil and then there's a, a ratio that you see in healthy soil and one that you see in unhealthy soil and if you're starting from scratch in fields that have been poisoned for a while, you're. I may have to look in this book for a little to get the actual number. The book I'm referring to is Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown, which I would recommend to anybody. He's a big farmer from out in North Dakota, 7,000 acres. And he had this um, miraculous thing where he was a cash grain farmer using you know GMO crops, a lot of herbicides, a lot of fertilizers. And he had four crop failures in a row four years in a row where they just had to leave the crops in the field. And then he was had basically stopped spraying because they didn't have, they couldn't afford the herbicides anymore. And he observed miraculous recovery in his soil just by not doing anything, not tilling it and not spraying it. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, and so he's been doing this now for 25 years, grows all these different crops, never tills his soil. And um, basically his main thing, beginning theory is that you don't disturb the soil, that the soil has this life in it, this network of connections that if left unchecked will take care of themselves, will take carbon into the ground, will feed plants all you need, 
and um, and will be much much more resistant to weather changes too because there is you've got in healthy soil you also have a thick cover on the top of it of some sort of thatch whether it's old hay or stuff that the cows have walked in when they grazed or the residue from last year's crop and um, if you can do that you any whether it's your garden or a seven thousand acre farm you will foster so much more life. And that's our, another term that I think is really interesting and relevant to this discussion of like what's our spiritual slash religious duty to the earth is like in, in the – I'm Catholic and in the Catholic lingo right now, they talk a lot about a culture of life, how important it is to foster a culture of life. And they're very specifically talking about in pro-life versus abortion and that a culture of life is one in which – well, people don't have the need uh, to abort their babies. And I guess that is certainly a version of it, but you would think that culture of life, that term could include a much, much broader notion that when we, what we want to foster life in all of its forms and, and, a, and um, a society that bases itself on food that's raised by like monocultures and eliminating all species but the ones that serve us like slaves is not fostering a culture of life and mm-hmm. that all of us have the obligation especially as we do live in this kind of in this bubble of comfort created by technology that we need to step outside that bubble mm-hmm. and start looking after the earth so it can continue to look after us yeah i'm thinking that kind of something happened to farming where we separated the the animals that we were raising from the crops that we were growing. And so, you know, you're talking about cash, cash crops. Well, we used to be raising the crops to feed the animals. I mean, there was a whole cycle. And then you had crop rotation and you had, you know, you put, you sow your oats and then, then your alfalfa would come up and oats were the nurse crop or whatever, you know. And then you had your pasture and then you had, and you had hay. And then you'd every, every few years you would put in corn or some other kind of crop. But we now have farms that are nothing but animals, thousands of them, all crammed together, and they buy their feed. Right. And then we have other farms that are just growing soybeans, you know, and there are just kind of a few crops. I mean, we're kind of wondering what happened to all those other crops. But, um, you know, corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans. And that's just kind of separated. And I, I was uh, kind of impressed when I went cross country on the western side, going from west of the Mississippi toward the west coast. There just really aren't farms like you think about anymore. For one thing, you don't really see farmhouses. You see a or farm tra- people. trailer. You see a pickup. You don't see any laundry on the line. You don't see any chickens outside. They go. I don't think there's even any women out here. I mean, <laughs> it's like. And what are they? It's just acres and acres and acres and and these huge machines, giant machines. There's really not, you know, the guy with the overalls and the little cap, you know, he's really not there anymore. And so that whole, that old idea of farming has really changed. It's very compartmentalized. Right. And I feel like it's, it's, it's so, it's so far gone that there's probably no getting it back. The idea that, that like, that you've got this independent businessman who's this farmer out in the country and his and they're taking well good care of this piece of land and they're getting this good income off it. And like, that's a goal for a lot of people moving to the country and some of them achieve it. But I think as someone who lives in the country and has some land that certainly was a, a farm that way at times in history that, that paid enough cash money for the person to live on it. I think that a lot of us need to really take up a different goal, you know, and the goal being to take beautiful care of that piece of land. And that's the first goal. Mm-hmm. And then all other goals are subsidiary to that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I wanted to go back to how do you not till? Now, it seemed like this no-till was kind of tied in with glyphosate. Okay, right. you don't till. Great. It's good not to till. And now we're just going to kill everything with a poison. But that's not really the idea of no-tilling. What is another way well, of farming with uh, no-tilling? I don't know you, how you do that. You pretty much have to have animals involved on some level, okay. I think. I mean, the, only, the ways that I... Know of doing it. The other ways of if you um, are to use what are called cover crops, 
where like maybe you'd plant, let's say, winter wheat right now or winter rye or something that'll come up first and really, really early in the spring and totally blanket out all the weeds. And then you can run what's called a crimper or something. And basically when it's in the stage of just making a seed head, kill the seeds and then plant. You crush it. Yeah, you crush, you crush it. it. You're not killing them with poison. You're just no, kind of stopping, yeah, yeah, stopping their maturing. Maturing, right. Mm-hmm. And so you, and then you take, then you have like a seed bed and you just plant, they, they have no-till farming equipment now that you can either to plant a bigger seed, you use a planter or like a smaller seed, you use a drill and you just plant into that and you have a f- relatively weed-free and much healthier stand because you oh, didn't spray the whole thing with poison I when you started. See. Yeah. And the other way to to work your land without you disturbing and cutting it up is to like really graze it. You know, you if you know that there's an area that you want to like change the species in, you leave the cows in there for a couple extra days. And I mean, the basic idea behind having animals on any farm nowadays, if you're wanting to regenerate, the term right now is regenerative agriculture. To use to describe this kind of farming where you're your main focus is bringing back the health and life in your soil. By rotational grazing, you move the animals around, you keep the animal, the, the plants stimulated, you keep the carbon moving through the animal, you keep the animals growing so you have a crop. You know, the animals can be, can be the product too. You don't need to always be making a cash crop that gets hauled off, you know, combined and then hauled away in a semi. You can also have a meat product that people buy and which mm-hmm. by all scientific or aesthetic tests, you know, grass-fed, rotationally grazed beef is just a much better product. It's it's Mm -hmm. better for your health. It's better for the health of the land, the farmer, the animal. And using that system, it allows you to always have something green and growing, some of which you've planted with a tractor to get get it established, others of which just naturally occur in the process of moving animals across the land because plants go to seed and seed seed themselves back. And it, it... to really get things cycled in a no-till way, I think you almost always have to have some animals involved. Like you mm-hmm. can certainly have mm-hmm. them, you can go through fallow periods where you don't have animals, but I think if you don't have the microbial activity and the chewing activity of, of animals, it, it, things break down a lot slower mm-hmm. and it doesn't work as good. Well, I was just thinking of a book that a friend gave me called, called Cows Save the Planet. And, um, you know, it's kind of, it's a different way of looking at this than the the all, you know, the all plant based diet kind of thing. Thinking that that animals are bad for the planet, meat eating is bad for the planet, and kind of the way we're doing meat now, crowding all the animals together, not grazing them, not uh, improving the soil. Yeah, that that probably isn't good. On the other hand, um, there's a lot to be said for responsible grazing and sustainable grazing, grazing animals that can use plants that, you know, otherwise, you know, th- nobody can reach them to harvest them or anything. You know, they can, they can, they can use land that um, isn't tillable or whatever. Right. And so, <clears throat> you know, it's not, a, it's not an either or, it, you know, we either have to all be vegans now and no no meat because that's bad for the planet. So, you know, there's kind of a well, it's all connected again. It sure is. And I- and and you and you know, the other like solution that's offered by modern technological America is yeah, like the incredible burger or whatever all these new imitation meats. Impossible. Impossible yes. burger, yeah, yeah. etc. And um, they taste okay. But again, is that really the solution that we're going to have enormous fields of soybeans so that we can make impossible burgers? I mean, like, I don't think that that does, that makes it even more compartmentalized. Our food's even more distant from us because it comes from from factory in a process we have no understanding of at all. Like, at least with a cow, we kind of get how it works, you know, and that's why a lot of us feel bad about eating CAFO raised, you know, like confinement raised meat because... We know what a cow's like, and we know that cows prefer to be outside, no matter how much marketing tells us mm-hmm. they like being inside. Mm-hmm. And um, and their meat is of a different quality. Totally. I mean, just if they're not out in the sunlight and they're not eating green food, which they're meant to be eating. <laughs> right. You know, I I mean, I'm st- I was still so naive, really. 
And I've lived on the land now for a lot of years, but not really realizing that an egg might look like an egg, but if the chicken has never had a bug or never had been out in the sun and never eaten anything green, the egg doesn't have the same food value. Yeah. And now I understand that's so obvious, but what the animals eat really matters to our health. Oh, absolutely. And it's definitely an animal that eats plants, like like leafy matter, has a much higher omega-3 fatty acid to omega-6 fatty acid ratio, whereas an animal that eats a seed, i.e. a corn seed or a soybean seed, has got a lot of omega-6s, which is bad for your mental health, bad for your heart health, just and just not the way that God or nature intended it to work. And And it seems like we seems so intent on defying what nature wants for us, you know, and how that happened is really still a fascinating question that isn't totally unanswered, but I do think there are these like these hints in our spiritual documents that tell us that that we're on the wrong track, you know, that we've interpreted all of the words of God and Christ and whomever to focus us on our how we treat other people which is certainly important and can't be ignored. But they also, from the very beginning, were instructing us how to look after the earth, and those are important instructions as well. Mm-hmm. Even think of how like the ultimate ritual of Christianity is, is, the, is the meal. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Eucharist. It's the communion. And how curious it is that that's represented to us in almost all of our Christian churches by like a factory-made wafer. You know, something that has has no f- no kind of natural food quality left to it at all, and I just I've always noted that as I've participated in those different rituals, like this doesn't seem quite right. This is not kind of how it was probably in Jerusalem two thousand years ago, a factory made wafer. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> things to ponder. Aren't things they? to ponder. Well, I'm having this discussion with Lars Bergen, and I'm I'm really enjoying that. And I hope you are too. Um, Lars is he thinks on the big picture, and it's really wonderful to have you here, Lars. And you're listening to WDRT Community Radio 91.9 FM. And streaming live on the internet, and you could listen to the show again for the next week by going to our website, WDRT.org, and just looking for the archive of Who's in the Kitchen. That's the show you're listening to right now. And I'm Philothea Beeson, and we're just going to get back to our discussion. It's kind of like the sacredness of food and getting back to what God really intended for us uh, when he made us and our and the whole earth. I think another way to look at it, to, to you know, step away from farming for a second, just think about how we as families and humans interact with food. So much of marketing of food is intended to appeal to like kind of both greed and desire for like convenience and ease, all of which militate against like the family meal where you, where you take some time to make something good and everyone sits down and eats it together. And better yet, what if, if it was grown on your own place and you clean it and wash it yourself? Like all of that has tremendous power that accumulates as you do it, you know, and that both for the togetherness of your family, whatever type of family or size of family or shape of family mm-hmm. you have, people taking that time together to to nourish their bodies and to, to just look at each other and consider the gifts of the day, I think is so valuable and Everything in our mainstream society is guiding us away from that, that you should be working all the time or you should be going doing something for yourself all the time. But this, the sacrifice mm-hmm. that's involved in everyone slowing down and cooking some food and eating it is, uh, I think, really important. And again, goes back to the original Christian story of Jesus and his friends, like having a meal. So I think if, if people get so disconnected from food that they don't know how to cook it, they don't even really know where it physically comes from, then this argument is probably how how do they even understand what I'm saying? Or mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because it's not mm-hmm. food's just something you put in your body. Right. Well, I'm just thinking of this book that's kind of tangentially related, and it's called mm-hmm. French Women Don't Get Fat. And it's really a fun book to read. 
and you might say, you know, French people just sort of have a body type and it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not going to get fat, but, <laughs> but they, they really have some of these qualities that you're thinking of. Maybe not so religious anymore, but they yeah. do take time to eat and they do not, as a people, eat on the run. They don't munch on a hamburger you know, while driving the car. And, you know, I mean, so maybe they've made almost a religion out of food, but, you know, of course they're known as just wonderful cooks. But some of the points in the book are if you really take time, you've prepared the food, you're grateful for people to have really made a beautiful, careful preparation of the food. You sit down and you share it. You anticipate it. You don't really have to eat and eat and eat more. The part of the eating is just is the preparation and the ambiance and the anticipation and the first few bites, which are just great. And you don't overeat. You don't just keep on eating. And, of course, we laugh about, you know, French portions in a French restaurant, you know, how tiny they are and little pieces on a plate and so forth. But it, it is not really made to be just wolf down and fill yourself up and we really do look at our whole country and we do have a lot of obesity and we also have these drive-in restaurants and we have these you know convenience stores and like you say you know this is food that you don't know where it comes from how it was made it's just showing up and you go and you grab something that's ready and you go hop in the car and take it to work or whatever and wow the meal has really changed eating has really changed right yeah, and you just wonder to whose benefit, you know, like the it doesn't. What's a more, what's a better way of spending your time than cooking, eating, the food that is going to sustain you? But people have been tricked, or convinced that there are better things for them to do than that. And I think it, yeah, it just leads to this real feeling of disconnection from reality, and also a real feeling of tedium. And that's what, Pope Francis mentions that a bunch of times in here is like. The story of modern convenient life is a story of real serious boredom. Boredom. <laughs> you know, boredom. because nature and working with nature is infinitely interesting. You know, it's every tree is different. Every animal is different. And if you put yourself in it, it's just so compelling and fascinating. And you, you, you can really observe it with um, like little kids. You put your If you put a little child at your side and you're outdoors like, Man, their 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 desire for anything but what they're doing just goes away. You know, they're so involved and happy. And then you think of like rhythm versus tedium, and what those those two were, or rhythm versus boredom. You know, because rhythm implies a repetitive nature of life. Like we all have to have patterns to survive. Mm -hmm. But the rhythm of dinner, the rhythm of the seasons of planting, those are like things you look forward to. You know, but Eating the same Arby's roast beef sandwich every day, that's not rhythm. That's tedium. That's boredom. That's like, that's dreadful. There must be more to life than right, this. Right, <laughs> totally. And I think there's a lot of people that have this sentiment. And you think about like, well, why is at this time in life you see this this really pervasive ecological unease, especially among young people? And those same young people have almost no interest in religion in my experience. And I think it's kind of the same problem. Is it like the the Judeo-Christian religions have not taken up this problem? They have not owned that like part of a truly ethical life and a moral life and a spiritual life. You have to treat the earth in, in a respectful way. You have to care. So now that the young people really have become super aware of the you know dangers to the climate, etc., and they don't hear any answers or many... Pope Francis being the exception, answers to like, well, how do we solve this? How do we get our way out of this from religious figures? No wonder that's not where they're going for the answer. But well, I think that you could mm. you could imagine fa church fathers and mothers taking this up and and offering the types of answers that like, you know, the people that got us into this are like scientific experts and government subsidy programs. So the likelihood that they're going to get us out of it seems very unlikely. I think if <laughs> probably if there is a solution, it's going to come in the in the minds and the hearts and the eyes of normal people that they're going to see what's going on and do something about it and not wait for 
Paris Climate Accord or something else to like solve it all for them, but rather look around them and mm-hmm. start solving it for themselves. And ideally with the help of their and the guidance of their spiritual leaders who who supposedly that's what they do. They offer mm-hmm. solutions that aren't part of the market and capitalism and cash. And so I think there's possibility, there's hope, but like I do think it's very important for the, the religious leaders to embrace the need for to see spirituality in the world and not just in human interactions. Some things kind of happened in the development of Christianity that I think did, you know, there was sort of an animosity toward nature, seeing, you know, seeing it as, yeah, an adversary or something like that. And then, and then, you know, I'm just thinking that hymn, you know, the earth is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Right. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for the earth while we're here, even if we think we're going to go to heaven or, you know, streets paved with gold or something like that. Afterwards, God never said, despoil the earth, ruin it, kill stuff, uh, don't <laughs> don't care about, you know, your environment. And uh, I actually ran across a book I think you might like. It's called The Greening of the Orthodox Church. And it's like a huge compendium. It's like a 500-page book. And it includes all kinds of things that came out of our faith, out of scriptures, that do tell us that we are stewards, we're caretakers of the land. And this is, you know, uh, we're not at enmity with nature, but nature is a part of us. And so I think, you know, we do kind of got off on a sidetrack there. I Some people saw Christianity as really not caring about the environment, not having one bit of interest in it, and seeing environmentalists as the problem. <laughs> Right. So I don't know where that came from. I don't think you can really say that's supposed to be part of our religion. We're both talking as Christians, but but you know, of course, we look and look at paganism. We can say, well, they were paying attention to nature, right? You no, know, look at the you know indigenous people. They were really paying attention to nature. They knew they lived on you know on knowing nature, right? And and, and I think and I think that. I was the one book that I couldn't find around the house when I came over was Braiding Sweetgrass, which I don't know if you've heard of that one. Oh, Braiding no. Sweetgrass. Mm. This book is fantastic, and it's um, it's written by a woman who's both a PhD in botany and also a Potawatomi member of the Potawatomi Indian tribe, and um, and just talking about how important it is to see the plants and the animals around you as having awareness and spirit and soul. And if you look at them that way and treat them that way, they'll respond. Because we, I, I mean, I think the other thing is with, I was being raised as a Christian and how you pray and stuff. You don't, you don't really, you expect God to be kind of a voice out of a bush or something. You know, like you don't, whereas I think those like more nature-based faith traditions knew how to see the answers all around them. They were looking and they could see, you know, if the river changed direction, that's a problem. You know, like if the earthquake comes, that's a real problem. Someone's, something we're doing isn't working. And of course, earthquakes in part of our country, parts of our country now are epidemic due to fracking, like every day in Oklahoma. And so you would think that, yeah, people who were raised in a tradition where they had, were taught to look and see and analyze not just based on what voice God gives them in their head, but rather what's manifest all around them, I think we, would, we wouldn't have found ourselves in such a trouble mm-hmm. necessarily. And again, with farming, where you, every farmer in, in the country is encouraged to grow one of four or five crops, that the answer, instead of like looking at your farm and seeing what it wants to give, asking it what it wants to give, you assume it wants to give corn or soybeans, like everyone else's farm in the entire United States. I think it's really, um, so a lot of what we can do is start by just looking and looking at our own lives, like Mm -hmm. looking at like, oh, how do I eat? What do I eat? What does that foster? How do I take care of the little bit of the green earth that's been given to me to take care of? And just look at it, you know, for a little while and see how it makes you feel. Mm -hmm. You know, are you proud of it? And um, and I think none of these things that I'm saying are like at all like, Surprising. I do think it is interesting to look at myself. I was raised, you know, like I come from a family of German farmers who like, you know, hated themselves some weeds. I mean, really want like a good farm was a clean farm and a clean farm meant no weeds, you know. 
that's been the goal for such a long time. Let's get rid of the pests. Let's get rid of the diseases. And let's get rid of the weeds. And right. and, and, and in the meantime, <laughs> we kind of took the life out of the soil. Right. And I mean, 40% out of the food. decline in bird life. 40% in 40 years in this country. Because the other thing that... I mean, what we're what we have now. Uh, we've we've been talking in a religious context, but of course, what really like killed humans' connection to the wildness and the land is technology. It's science, for lack of a better word, because it just reduces all problems, all life to problems to be solved. You know, if if this if this thing is growing between my rows of corn, it's obviously something to be killed, not something to be understood or concerned with or analyzed, but rather just eliminated, because. Back in the days of like St. Thomas Aquinas, like the Middle Ages, they had this concept of the great chain of being. And yeah, the humans were at the top of it, right below the angels, but all these other beings from the stones on up were part of the same chain. So it would naturally, to people like that, it would make sense that if you spray poison all over your farm, well, that's going to make its way into up and down the chain of being. It's not going to mm-hmm. stay where you leave mm-hmm. it because that's just not how everything's connected. So where is it going to go? Isn't that something they found out recently, that if you eliminate a predator, it just ruins the chain up and down? You think, oh, let's just get rid of those wolves or, you know, right. something something that's, you know, causing harm. And and you think, well, how could we... I mean, I thought I'd like to eliminate mosquitoes. They were caught, I mean, bringing all kinds of diseases. And I thought, you know, we don't dare do that. We don't even really understand why mosquitoes were made. Right. And if we get rid of mosquitoes, we may find we really messed up well, I'm sure birds eat them. <laughs> it's, it's, definitely, you know, it's, like <laughs> it's definitely proven that people who use insecticides, farmers who use insecticides, actually have more pests than those who don't. Because in most like ecosystems, the predator, whether it's an insect or an animal, they have much, much less young than the prey because that's how it's set up, right? Like you, you need one wolf pack to take care of like a big area and eat a lot of deer. <laughs> And so in the insect world, the prey insects, which are the ones that eat the plants, tend to reproduce wildly fast, whereas the predator insects, the one that eats the insects that eat the plants, don't reproduce as fast. So if you kill all the insects indiscriminately, the ones that will actually come back faster are the ones you're trying to stop. Um, <laughs> but, but because today's farming landscape is controlled by dominated by, you know, salesmen selling solutions and then a government willing to subsidize the production of these very few crops. I don't think that, that a lot of our our farmers are forced to look and see and realize, take the time to recognize what these practices are doing to their farm. Mm-hmm. Is there hope for farmers? I mean, we're really watching farmers just go out of business, I mean, every week here in Wisconsin. And it's really sad because we've always thought of ourselves as a great farming state. And, you know, family farms, dairy farms, farms with, you know, 40 or 50 cattle, dairy cattle. You know, that a lot of them had names. A lot of the cows had names. And so what's happening is that this farm, the way farming is set up, is not even supporting these families anymore. And, you know, something's kind of gone wrong, but it can, can, is there something that farmers can do instead? I know some of them are doing, you know, value added and they're, they're, they're making their own ice cream or they're making their own yogurt. They're making a product yeah. um, on their farm. That's, you know, maybe w- one way uh, or, or finding a niche for something like I had, you know, a guest a couple of weeks ago and she's advocating growing yaks. Well, let's just, let's just do something different. Let's not participate in the cash crop, you know, two kinds of products, you know, and let's let's get something that's a little niche market and get yourself out of that dependency on that big farm policy. Yeah. But I don't know. Do you have some I, I, ideas, Lars? Because you're a farmer. I'm sure you pondered this. A lot. And I think certainly if you go all the way back in history in the U.S. and then further back, like farmers that grow commodity crops, whether the commodity is milk or... Mm-hmm corn or soybeans or whatever, eventually they, first of all, the quality of their product declines because they're being paid by volume, not by quality. And secondly, they, they, they lose out to someone who's willing to um, sacrifice the environment or the quality of the product for volume. 
So you just have to compete. Right. So your 50 cow dairy that we all um, have such nostalgia for is competing with a 5,000 cow dairy. There's like right, there's one right close to my farm out by Westby. I think there's 4,600 animal units under one roof, all going to Quick Trip for milk. All that milk, just they have three tankers there all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and call um, them units. Ooh, yeah. 50. Right. They call yeah. them animal units <laughs> and uh, <laughs> instead of animals. <laughs> and um, so if you're, if you're making that product, the same product as that guy, you're having to compete with someone who obviously, I mean, they had another manure spill out there within the last three weeks, killed a bunch of fish. It's just all the time that that there's some sort of public damage. There's the wells across state of Wisconsin are poisoned by liquid manure or nitrate fertilizer. I think this is shocking that we're just letting our water get poisoned, our beautiful water of the state. Is right, right, and again, all these ha- all these have uh, like their real component, and then you think of their spiritual component. Like water is life. Water yes. is baptism. Water is like water is water. It's the universal solvent. It's it's that which binds the whole world of life together. And if you if you ruin that, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's dire. And it, and to whose benefit? Like to whose? There, there. Some people must know what's going on, and and they apparently. And a lot of those people, I imagine, even go to church and like think about the virtue of, of their lifestyle. But if you're causing permanent or semi-permanent damage to your environment and your neighbor, how can that be okay? You know, that's... Uh-huh. I, I, I think that modern man has just been able, men and women, have been able to just compartmentalize their brains. And so you can think you're a good person... And you can be gouging other people and you can be ruining somebody else's pension because you made a killing on the stock market or whatever. I mean, just so many things that just you can just separate yourself. You can separate yourself from right. from your morality. And uh, we have to just kind of get reintegrated, right? Right. And I mean, you could say certainly the limited liability corporation has been part of that where you can have... You know, a lot of these big farms, the people that, that are making money and making decisions are not even in the same state as all those cows. Um, mm. You know, or these mm. enormous slaughterhouses that are, you know, run on um, the labor of people who have no other choice. And um, those are often owned by people from China, from Brazil. So if if this land really is like our land, as the song says, you know, like I think the whatever, the renewal of America is um, got to start with people who live in the country looking down at their feet and deciding to to renew what they got. Mm-hmm. So I think that to answer your question, well, what should farmers do? What can farmers do? I mean, the thing about this regenerative agriculture, one of the benefits of it is it costs way less to do it than mainstream farming. You're not forever running around with a big tractor buying chemicals to spray that the soil itself is the reservoir for your for your efforts so every mm-hmm. year it gets a little bit better works a little bit better needs a little bit less of your attention or a little less of your mm-hmm. effort but the other thing about it is it's fun it does ever as things start improving and getting better it's encouraging like in our place little story about soil health when when Europeans came to this country the average organic matter like in those great plains was six seven eight nine ten percent really high. Now the average organic matter in the soils of the United States is about 2% or less. Organic matter is basically carbon in the soil, which speaks to its ability to produce good food, to host all these microorganisms, and also to hold water. And on our farm, when we took over, it was an old dairy farm that had been run the traditional way, tilled up, and and he spread manure, and he seemed to, like it was it was tidy, but there was, I don't think, a lot of effort to build the soil. And in 10 years of rotational grazing... We have increased the organic matter from like 1.9% to 4.5%, almost getting it back up to like the levels of when it, you know, when America was a grassland. Or so when, do you find that out by soil testing? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have new, and it's soil testing is a very a cheap and simple and easy way to like see where you're at. And um, in terms of like if you're stuck making a living to feed your family with a commodity crop, I would, I guess you would probably want to start really just producing that commodity in a way that's going to improve your soil and make and make that your priority and assume that 
that um, profit will take care of itself because you're doing the most basic job of a farmer, which is to look after the land and the animals Mm -hmm. instead of thinking that you're going to get out of it by... And certainly if you're doing that and you have that kind of personality, you can certainly sell direct. And there's a lot of people around here doing it where you get people on their farm and they see what you're doing. And of course, they'd be happy to pay a little bit more for that kind of food and to buy it directly from the farmer because it's self-evidently better. Makes them feel good. Makes mm-hmm. them feel good physically because it's it's healthier for them and makes them feel good spiritually because it connects them to a place and an understanding of how we ought to live here. So we're not that remote really here in the Cooley region. You know, we're, that, we're a couple hours. La Crosse is a pretty big city. Madison's not mm-hmm. far away. Minneapolis is not that far away. So I think if you are running that kind of farm and you're up for meeting the public once in a while, I think it is possible to get people out. Well, there are these movements that I think are very encouraging. I mean, I don't think 10 or 15 years ago there were nearly as many farmer's markets. All the little towns around here have farmers. People want to meet the people who are growing the crops. They want to support them. And um, all these young families, well, we're seeing it here. I guess it's not happening all over the country, but we're seeing young people bringing their kids and working out in the farms and running a CSA and selling things at the farmer's market and um, growing heritage breeds of, you know, pigs and chickens and, you know, getting more diverse. And and it's fun. Isn't it fun? Right. I mean, that's the part that I think is – and the the part of the Garden of Eden story that I really think, you know, we can all meditate on is like it was the Garden of Eden, like right here, you know, that we can – we can – Humans have so much knowledge and ability now. We can make choices and we can choose to create for ourselves in our backyard or on our little farm or at the park that feeling that we were meant to be here mm-hmm. and that it was meant to surround us and that and we owe it to ourselves to not not die in 50 years in a desert of nothing but people. Mm-hmm. Well, it does kind of come to an attitude of Appreciation and thankfulness, doesn't it? Yeah. And um, yeah, the whole the whole lifestyle of grabbing something and you know eating it in the car, instead of really sitting down and you know just really being grateful, however you are, just to pausing and just being grateful, not just at Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? But you know, every day, grateful for what we have and just becoming more observant and appreciative. Yeah, yeah, aware. Yeah. Not aware of how, what we're, what job we're going to do or what weed we're going to eliminate today, but aware of what's actually <laughs> right here in front of us right this minute. And right. Fostering life when we can. Yeah. Where we can. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, Laris. It really, it gives me hope. It really does. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I think it's, I'm, I think at times I've probably been a little confusing because I'm, it is a big subject and one that I don't want to offend people when I like say that what we're doing isn't working, but it also seems self-evident that it's not. And mm-hmm. so maybe hopefully other people can also consider solutions and become aware of how beautiful it could be. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I've been talking to Lars Bergen from rural Westby near Bloomingdale. And uh, this has been very stimulating and very encouraging, Lars. So thank you so much for being on Who's in the Kitchen. Thanks for your show. I'm Philothea Beeson, and stay tuned for some excellent programming following on WDRT this afternoon. And we'll see you next week.